Welcome to the Journey to Medicine podcast, where you'll find fascinating stories from Stanford students and faculty about their struggles, setbacks, and successes in their journey. Follow along as these conversations help inspire and empower you. And now, your host, Sarita Kamani, faculty at Stanford. Harvard Medical School faculty, Dr. Gail Gazelle, is my guest today. Dr. Gazelle has many years of experience as a practicing physician in a variety of roles. She has authored several articles published in high-impact journals, and she is also author of book Everyday Resilience, which was published in August 2020. In addition, Dr. Gazelle is currently a very well-respected physician coach helping hundreds of physicians improve work-life balance. Dr. Gazelle, thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I was looking at your work, and I think it's so interesting as a physician yourself who practiced for many years, and then now helping other physicians, you actually have experience on both sides. So at this point, as we all know, the applications for medical schools are increasing quite a bit. So there has been a huge jump, especially after COVID. And so I feel that this is so important for them to hear more about what it takes to be in the healthcare field, and then how to take action on improving their well-being and uh, making it successful. So we can start with your early years and what motivated you to get into medicine and how were your early years? Well, we'll go back a ways then, won't we? Like many uh, people in medicine, I was interested in a career in medicine early on. I grew up in the suburbs of New York City and, you know, a white middle-class family. Everything looked great on the outside, but like many people as well, my family experience was a bit complicated. And unfortunately, there was a lot of abuse in my family that left me feeling very isolated and alone. And as I moved forward and moved toward my career in medicine, I was really drawn to hospice and end-of-life care. And I think Part of why I was drawn to that was that, you know, this is now a couple of decades ago, we didn't really have a field of hospice and palliative medicine, and people who were coming to the end of their lives were also very isolated and alone. When I was in medical training, we'd be on rounds and, you know, we'd go into, we'd be the attending would say, oh, this is an interesting case in this room, and we'd all marshal in and see the patient and leave. Then the next one, fascinating case over here. And then the next one, oh, that patient's dying, let's not even go in. So there was just so much isolation. So I was really drawn to the end of life population, I think because there was a connection there about helping people in a vulnerable time being less isolated. Mm. So it seems like your uh, later practice was very much influenced by how you grew up. And how would you say that you got the strength to go through all that work you had to do to go get into medical training if you didn't have enough family support? Was there any other support that helped you? Yeah, well, families are complicated. My family valued education Mm -hmm. and I was an academic achiever. And I think that was part of how I coped. You know, I'd go to school and school was a great escape from what was happening in the family. And it'd be like, you know, teacher, teacher, pick me. I've got the answer. So there's always good and bad. And I think some of the good in my family was one, you know, the yes, that education was valued. And then because I was good at school, that got that got validated as well. So that motivated further achievement. Was there anyone in the family who was in the medical field? No, no one at all. Okay. So how did you think about it? It Was it 
the thought about helping people? Um, or was it something else that influenced your thinking for med medicine? It was very much helping others. I think in my family, it was sort of like, well, you're smart, so are you going to be a doctor or a lawyer? <laughs> and I knew of those two, which one I wanted to be and which one I didn't want to be. So I knew that I wanted to help. And again, there, there was kind of a commitment inside of myself to help vulnerable individuals. I, I'm not sure I knew what shape it was going to take, you know, let's say in my teen years and in college. But then later in college, I actually volunteered in a hospice. And that was an absolutely, absolutely fantastic experience to actually move from wanting to help to helping. Mm -hmm. And it really cemented for me that, yes, this really nourished me. I had a lot to bring to it. So that, that was a really important experience for me. Uh, so it seems like while in college, you got that experience. And was that the point where you said, okay, this is where I decide that I go to medical school? Well, I'll be honest with you. I didn't have a lot of confidence by the time I hit college. And I actually thought for a little while that maybe I would become a veterinarian. I was a little afraid to become a doctor. I was living in Canada during my growing up at that point, and I thought somehow it just wasn't as intimidating. So I spent a couple of summers working on dairy farms and applied to veterinary college actually twice and didn't get in. And I'm so grateful that I didn't because then... I just started thinking, is this really the right thing for me? Or maybe I could go to medical school and become a doctor. And I'm so, anyway, looking back, the thought, I, I'm so much happier. I don't think I really was cut out to be a vet. So it, it kind of all worked out in the end. So it seems like you were feeling a little bit nervous about applying to medical school. And was it just because you felt it was competitive or, or you were not sure if you wanted to deal with human beings as patients? Well, I think it was actually something different, which was a lack of confidence in myself mm -hmm. and the sense that other people could be doctors and that somehow I couldn't. It really was a confidence issue. And yet, when I kind of moved along in my personal journey, perhaps, and kind of grow, growing a little bit more, so I think it was a confidence issue. And in fact, once I kind of sat with it and really, again, had the experience of not getting into veterinary college two years in a row... I really realized, you know, was this the right thing and could I do it? You know, it was sort of a period of self-reflection for me. And again, I, it was worth taking that time to reflect because, again, I, I think I'm a lot happier in this career. Other guests who have been on the podcast have actually brought up very similar things about not feeling confident and um, trying to self-reflect or trying to talk to mentors or trying to, you know, get advice from others. Um, so at that time, it wasn't that it was going to be an easier thing for you to apply to medical school, but did you do anything that helped you overcome that, what you felt was lack of confidence? Well, that I would say is a longer journey. And looking back, I think it was mainly pausing and reflecting about what I deeply wanted. I'm not sure that there was anything more specific that built my confidence at that point. I did... As I said, I, I initially grew up outside of New York City. Then my mother moved my sister and I up to Toronto. And then I um, transferred into Cornell in upstate New York. And I think that actually bolstered my confidence too. getting into an Ivy League school. Gave me a little more of a sense of, oh, wow, I can, I can kind of cut it. I maybe do have what I would need to pursue what it is that I really want to do. 
So you finished your undergrad and then you applied to medical schools. Was it you got in the first time? Well, it's so much more competitive now. Let's be honest about it. I really think that of a certain generation, it was much easier to get in. Not that it was easy, but it was easier. Mm-hmm. And so I did get in the first time, but I remember I was on a wait list at Yale and I had my heart set on going to Yale. And I think I was 11th, they told me I was 11th on the wait list. And at the same time, I got into the State University of New York at Syracuse. And I remember the anguish of thinking, because if I I had to make a decision, you couldn't have two spots. So I gave up that 11th spot at Yale and pursued SUNY Upstate where I went to medical school and everything was fine. In the end, it doesn't really matter where you get your education, frankly. You're probably hearing that from other guests. Um, So many doors open for you once you do go through medical school. That's certainly been my experience. Because the training takes you towards a similar road and similar path. Once you were in the medical school, do you remember how you felt? Was there any time that you felt overwhelmed or you felt like this was the right place for you? I knew it was the right place, but was it hard? Yes, it was hard. You know, those weekends of studying 12, 13 hours a day were pretty common. And it was a pretty competitive atmosphere. I don't really remember it as a particularly friendly time, to be quite honest. You know, everybody was kind of jockeying and trying to get ahead. And so it was was definitely a challenging four years. You did your residency in internal medicine. And why did you choose medicine over like a surgical field? I loved internal medicine. I loved the breadth of it. I loved the closeness that you had to patients. I wasn't kind of a hands-on person that would have been happy in the OR. Uh, so that never really occurred to me. I knew, it was pretty clear that internal medicine was the right place for me. It was intellectual enough that it satisfied that part of, um, of what drives me. And again, you could have really close relationships with patients and kind of have the breadth of knowledge of, of the whole human body. So it, it appealed to me very early on. You finished your residency in internal medicine, and then I know you have worked in various roles. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about uh, the different roles and was there anything particular that you got out of each of them? Yeah, I've had a varied career. So I worked initially in outpatient internal medicine in a large uh, HMO in Boston, And as I said, I was interested in end-of-life care, but it wasn't a field. This was in the 1990s. It wasn't a discipline. And so I was kind of on the lookout. Well, how could I get into my area of interest, hospice and palliative medicine? So a few years into my practice as an internist, I actually did a medical ethics fellowship here in Boston at Harvard Medical School, because I thought, well, medical ethics, you know, there's so many ethical issues at the end of life. Maybe that'll get me where I want to go. And sure enough, it did. When I finished that ethics fellowship, the HMO that I was working in decided to start a palliative care program. And so I was asked to actually start that program because of my background in medical ethics. A little bit down the the line, as I was developing a palliative care program, I also worked as a hospitalist on some of the surgical services, so like neurosurgery, plastic surgery, vascular surgery, at a time when hospitals were interested in decreasing length of stay of patients, trying to cut costs. That was a big thing for health maintenance organizations, HMOs. So I would join the surgical team and give input about diabetes or about hypertension or congestive heart failure management, all the non-surgical issues that every patient needed to have attended to. 
then as I moved forward, I worked in my chosen field of hospice. I became a hospice medical director. And those were really wonderful parts of my career. Uh, that, that's the part of my career that's just had tremendous meaning for me. So it seems that you really enjoyed being with the patient at the bedside or in the clinic as much as possible. So the longer time you spent with them, that was more enjoyable. Were there any parts during that time that were not that enjoyable that you would rather not have to go through? Yeah, I loved the patient care. Obviously, the administrative burdens at healthcare have always been there. They're not as, they weren't as heavy then as they are now. But they were always there and, you know, keeping up with the documentation, keeping up with the pre-authorizations, all the what we might call the below grade tasks, which I think most doctors find to be their Achilles heel. I would say that I was in that mix as well. Um, On the other hand, there was so much that I enjoyed, really, as you said, the meaningful encounters with patients, with vulnerable human beings who were coming to me for guidance and for solace and obviously for a cure when cure was possible. So for me, that always outweighed the negatives. (laughs) But, you know, everything is a trade-off. Everything, I think every job carries wonderful things and challenging things. Did you feel that you were able to maintain a work-life balance? while doing all these different roles? Well, that's a great question. No, no, I I really had a lot of burnout. During that time in in the 1990s, I um, had my son, so I became a mom. And I remember very clearly the lack of balance. Before my son was born, I felt fairly balanced, like I could manage it all. But And I never wore a watch. I was a very efficient practitioner and I would just spend the time with the patients, be present and be able to move along and get things done and go to the next patient. But I really remember the year, first year that my son was born and I had to get to the daycare by 6 p.m. to pick him up. I felt like it almost crushed my soul. Mm. It was such a juxtaposition of, of kind of having like from the first moment of the day, having to be efficient, having to stay on top of things so that you get out the gate to get in the car and beat the traffic and get to daycare. And I think having a child um, really tipped the balance in terms of that sense of work-life integration. I think it was fine before then, but like for many women Mm -hmm. and men, of course, but I think women have some different challenges. It just, from that moment that he was born, I could really feel the wear and tear of it. And then as he, you know, grew up, I remember the guilt. I'd be home with my son. I'd feel guilty that I wasn't taking care of patients or I wasn't staying up on the latest journal, or I'd be at work and I'd feel tremendously guilty that I wasn't with my son. It felt like a no-win situation. You know, like many physicians, I've had a burnout journey. Students bring that up. They ask us questions. How do you balance it? You know, what do you do about it? And I don't know if we have found the perfect answer for it yet, but did you find anything that helped at that time? I would say there are a number of things and some of it's hindsight and some of it I was aware of at the time. Being able to work with that guilt was, I think, a very important aspect of my growth and my ability to move from burnout into balance, from burnout into resilience, because you have to be able to shut off that guilt. That guilt is so oppressive and it really served no purpose. It did not help my son that I felt guilty when I was at work. It did not help my work that when I was with my son, I felt guilty, right? This very limited gain to guilt, and yet we can really experience it uh, intensely. 
And so as part of my journey, I kind of had to get to know things like my guilt and right-size them and actively work with them so that they didn't kind of topple me and didn't really kind of have the burdensome weight that they can often have. And that kind of led to my development and my deciding to become a coach because I saw that with coaching, we could learn some of these skills that we really weren't learning in our training about how to have some balance, how to set limits, how to work with the mind a little bit around uh, mental stories like guilt. So I think that I think that's really key for medical students and residents as well as attendings. And that's part of our journey, I think, to finding that balance that we all need to have if we're going to stay in the marathon of a medical career. And that's something really important for somebody who's even trying to get into medicine to understand what is involved when you are practicing medicine. And if they can try and practice it from early on, I think it would really help in their well-being. At that time, it seems like you then went and did a certificate course in um, physician wellness. Yes, I went into training to be a coach. Um, <laughs> And I did that specifically because we were learning more about burnout. I had my own burnout, but that's when the studies were starting to come out about high levels of burnout, about 40 to 60% of physicians in a wide variety of specialties experiencing burnout. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, what can I do to help? So that's when I went back into training with the, with the express purpose of helping my colleagues across this country learn things, again, that we just don't learn in our medical training. I feel like a lot of what I do as a coach is I, I help physicians build resilience, but I help them develop mindsets and patterns. And as we said, boundaries and working with difficult emotions like guilt, because once we do that, we're much less prone to burnout. We're actually much better able to manage the uncertainty and the challenges that a medical career involves. So that's what I'm very committed to doing as a physician coach. I also saw that you work with physicians, but also physician leaders. And I feel that that's really important for it to come from top down, because if the physician leaders understand the importance of doing it, it actually gets easier to implement it in the system. The role of leadership is powerful in creating a culture of well-being, a culture that is sustaining for physicians, a culture where they're not just expected to be invulnerable, to always have the answer, always be the captain of the team, never show any emotion, things that don't really go along with the totality of who we are as human beings. I think we knew that pre-pandemic. But it's become even more clear during the pandemic, hasn't it? And when we're all facing the fragility of life and the vulnerability and the fears that are quite normal in a time like this. So I think there's really healthy questioning of like, what are the limits of what should be expected of physicians? What are the limits of what we should expect of ourselves? You are probably familiar with that very high profile, very tragic physician suicide, Lorna Breen in New York City, an emergency physician who got a lot of publicity. And it was very interesting when you read about her life. She, like many physicians, was very driven. She was always the best. She actually did have some balance. She had a lot of sports that she did, and she was always the best of them. And in her emergency room, you know, she was at the epicenter of, of the COVID epidemic. And it was, from what I understand, it was completely out of control. And she, who was used to being invulnerable, always the top, always the expert, always the one in command, could no longer be in command. This was an out-of-control situation. 
And, you know, the interviews that they've shared with her family talk about how that was devastating for her. The disease, seeing obviously the incredibly tragic circumstances is one thing, but then kind of meeting with the fact that she was powerless to change it apparently had a very big impact on her. And I, I think there's a lesson here. I really do. And her family has established a foundation around physician wellness. It's just wonderful to to have that come out of this very tragic situation. But the learning is that we have to be able to be vulnerable. We Mm. can't always expect ourselves to have an answer. You know, this adage that many of us learn in our training that if we're not perfect, somehow we're a failure. And I'm really here to support physicians moving outside of that mold and to support training programs in really helping young adults foster a much more holistic and nuanced view of who they are, because there's so much uncertainty. There's a lot that we cannot control in human health and disease. We knew that before COVID, but we certainly know it now. And I think it's, a, it's just a key ingredient in building resilience to the many stresses of a physician career and really making sure that you avoid burnout. That is really important because I know that as a practicing physician myself and uh, with my colleagues, we do always want things to go well. And then when something happens, the first thing we tend to do is question ourselves. Could I have done something else? That's what puts a lot of pressure. And that's exactly to your point is to get people out of that. Okay, you don't have to get 100%. Things happen and they're not in your control. Yes, this makes me think of a physician that I was coaching a number of months ago who had a bad outcome, an adverse event with a patient. And it was a complicated case. And the physician really followed all of the protocols, dotted the I's, crossed the T's. And yet when there was this adverse event, was flattened by it. What did I do wrong? I must have done something. What if I had done this instead? What if I had done that? When in fact, They had done exactly what they were supposed to do, what the best evidence told them to do. There was nothing that they had missed, and yet they still felt this tremendous sense of responsibility. And I can see you can relate to what I'm saying. This is what so many of us feel. And yet we can work with those emotions. We can practice letting go, letting go of things like an exaggerated sense of responsibility when there's nothing to be gained by it. The event had happened. Mm -hmm. It was done. And yet what this physician suffered with up at night, feeling guilty, short fuse, irritable with his kids, so much kind of collateral Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the wear and tear. He himself said, you know, I felt like I aged five years. Mm -hmm. So there's like the events, the things that we can't control, those will always be there. Then there's the part of it that we can control. How do we interact with these difficulties. That's what resilience is all about. In my book, Everyday Resilience, a practical guide to build inner strength and weather life's challenges. That's a lot of what we're talking about. How do you really get clear? What parts of this can I control? And what parts can I not? And how can I really harness my limited energies towards the things that are under my control and limit kind of the the loss of energy that I really can't afford to lose as a busy physician, as a busy trainee? How do I really limit that? It's so important in building resilience. It, It really is. What would you recommend to somebody who is right now thinking about medicine or so both actually, either they are in pre-med and applying to med school and then students who are in medical school, what can they do at this point? I'd like to propose three things. One, we learn to be very self-critical. 
in our training. And then as physicians, as we're talking about here, there's a focus on what we're not doing well as opposed to what we are. So the first thing that I think is vitally important is to start the habit every single day of taking note of three things you did well that day. Many of us go to sleep at night thinking about what we didn't do well, right? This didn't work well. I didn't say this right. I didn't give a good presentation. It's the negativity bias that has the hold on all of our brains. Very important that we learn how to counter it. So that's the first one. Every single day, start this habit of taking note of three things you did well. You help to build that ability to see what you're doing well. That's the first. The second thing is um, applying self-compassion, being kind to yourself. So for, for medical students, they can often feel like an imposter. They can feel like they're not as smart as other people. All of that comparing mind gets very caught up. And it's not easy being a medical student or a resident or even an attending, really. It's, it's very demanding. So to be able to take care of oneself, all that compassion that we bring towards so many others, to actually bring that compassion to yourself, to remind yourself that what you're going through is difficult and that you're doing the best you can and that you don't have to be perfect at it. Then the third, we really haven't touched on this yet, Sarita, but the third is meditation mm -hmm. and mindfulness. Being able to build in a strategy to quiet your busy mind, so vitally important, so sustaining. I wish we were all taught that in our medical training. 10 minutes a day, meditate, just like you study for hours a day and just like you, you know, take care of patients X number of hours. I really want to encourage your trainees who are listening to look into mindfulness. Many of them probably have. That's the wonderful thing. And there are mindfulness courses being offered in medical schools now. It can really help you stay balanced, stay steady, stay calm, question your own mind and come up with some of the stories that the mind is good at generating. So those are the three things. Lean into the strengths, bring compassion to yourself, and practice mindfulness. These are such important points, and not just for the trainees, not for the students who are thinking about it, but so essential for all of us. And uh, I love the fact that you put this into these three points so crisp and clear. We, if we can practice those, uh, that can make a huge change for uh, all of us. So, so at this point, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing this breadth of knowledge and the important work that you're doing. I highly recommend everyone to read the Everyday Resilience book. And again, thank you so much, Dr. Gazelle, for joining. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. And now for the disclaimer. The Journey to Medicine podcast and its guests provide general information and entertainment, but not medical advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Journey to Medicine team are those of each individual and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the Journey to Medicine team and its guests, employers, sponsors, or organizations we are affiliated with. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for joining us.